It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 in your Bible this morning. We are wading into today some deep, deep water. And our text will be found in verse 24 and 25, where the scripture says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, uh, this has been a fascinating study so far uh, in the book of Romans, and Romans chapter 1 is the foundation for the rest of the book, and uh, we have spent an aggregate amount of time, if you will, on this study so far. We, um, well, we're on verse 24, and this is our 15th message. I might say we're moving a little bit too slow, and I keep trying to figure out how to go faster. And so today we're going to cover two whole verses, and uh, we will eventually pick up the pace, but these are very, very relevant, relevant times for this passage of Scripture. Do you remember when you were a kid and you talked to a parent or an adult, and maybe in my mind or in my world it worked this way, I would ask them a question, and uh, they would give me an answer, and as I looked back in life, I would think of that. I've thought of some of the answers that folks gave me, primarily my parents or maybe a spiritual authority or something like that, a teacher, and, and their answer in many, many ways um, helped to shape the rest of my life, helped to shape how I think, helped to shape what I do, my, if you will, my worldview, uh, it helped to shape that. I remember one incident vividly. Um, if I thought about it, I could still tell you what I was wearing. But uh, I remember as a kid, I, our family lived on 25th Street in Spanaway, Washington, a little suburb of Tacoma. We lived on 25th Street and uh, right off 152nd Street, which I'm sure all of you know right where that is. <sighs> I didn't even know where it was till Google Earth showed me. Um, but you know where, you know, I was, we lived there. We lived in a very modest, my dad was a pastor. We lived in a very modest three-bedroom, one-bath home. And there were five of us there. My sister who played the piano for us today and is uh, the uh, director of our daycare. She, who is eight years older than me, and then I have a brother five years older than me, and they definitely saved the best for last. And then there's me and then my mom and my dad. And there were five of us that lived in that home, sharing three bedrooms and one bath. If you're wondering why I focus on the one bathroom, because it was the source of a lot of tension in our home. Because my parents were pretty normal when it came to the bathroom. And, but my sister, as a teenage girl, probably liked the bathroom maybe a little bit more than she should. But my brother basically lived in the bathroom, it was the late 70s, early 80s, and he was trying to get the perfect feather in his hair and Aquanet, and my dad would not let him part his hair down the middle because that's what you weren't allowed to do. So my brother would be in the bathroom with his hair parted down the middle, feathering his hair, spraying it, and 
<laughs> and then before he would come out, he'd go back to that very business, 60s, uh, my three sons kind of haircut and story of our life, story of my life. And being the youngest, I was relegated to uh, really never seeing a bathroom. I don't remember too much about it, but um, I can remember one time in particular, I was about seven or eight years old, and it was a Monday morning, uh, the day before, I can remember in children's church where every parent should have their kid every Sunday. It's children's church, and I can remember the, the brother teaching children's church that morning was telling the story of Adam and Eve and the original sin, how that Eve uh, was told by God not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Long story made short, she was tempted, she listened to the tempter, and she ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the Bible says she gave to her husband who was with her, and he did eat also. And boy, Genesis 2 and 3, the world has never been the same since and will not until the return of Christ and the millennial kingdom. Well, I can remember that event and I can remember that message for sure. And I can remember this Monday morning, my dad being in the bathroom. And when you have a family, you don't always believe in privacy. Um, and, and my family... I mean, we did, but we didn't. And my dad was in the bathroom doing his morning routine, which is he would brush his teeth and then he would put on electric shave uh, to prepare for the electric razor and he would shave and then he would put on Old Spice. Every day of his life to this day, it goes like that, brush his teeth, dry his face, put on that electric shave stuff, shave and then Old Spice. I have fond, weird memories of Old Spice. Please don't ever buy me Old Spice. One time as a joke, I bought Brute for Bernie. He's still using it. Still using it. If you don't know who Bernie is, if you're a guest, the guy leading the singing, assistant pastor here, he's still using that. And so my dad was in there doing his morning routine, and I walked in with a deep theological question, and I asked this question. Dad, what would it have been like or what would it be like if Adam and Eve had never sinned? That's the deepest question I'd ever asked to that point. Most of my question had been around Captain Crunch and playing outside. And I thought my dad would kind of smile on me and reward me with like, great question. The world needs more questions like that. And, and I thought he'd give a great answer like, the lion is going to share grass with the lamb and the eagles will drop fish pellets down all over the ocean and feed the fish and, and kids will be able to walk around Portland without fear. <laughs> Some of my jokes, you got to stay with me on them. But his answer was so much more helpful than that. He said, well, son, I'm sure one of the rest of us would have messed it up. And if they didn't, you would have. My dad did not believe in positive reinforcement. Well, he was right. It was my first real lesson on the condition of man and more personally, on the condition of Chris. The picture of Adam and Eve wasn't a picture of folks who out there fell into sin. The picture in Adam and Eve was a picture of me and is a picture of me. 
You see, I had no problem thinking about the sinner. I had no problem thinking about folks out there who were sinners. But uh, thinking of myself as a sinner, that was the problem. And my dad, I don't know if he had had a bad Sunday the day before. I don't know if he and my mom had fought that morning. I don't know any of that. All I knew when I walked out of that bathroom is that I was a sinner. And if nobody else would have sinned in the world, then I would have brought the whole ship down. Well, Romans chapter 24 is a hard message, very hard. We are wading into what might be, I would submit to you, the most difficult text in the Bible to preach, especially in this day. Paul is making the point here and has been that man is not basically good, but basically evil. And he will make this point and develop it and keep this point going theologically all the way through chapter 4. All the way through chapter 4. Paul is not the only one in the New Testament to do this under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John is a 94-year-old man, writes a general epistle to churches everywhere. And he says in 1 John 1, verse number 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar and his word is not in us. There is a cry in our day that when you go to church, you need to hear about the greatness that is inside you, the champion that is inside you. These are just sermon titles I've heard recently. Be the winner that you were meant to be. Live your best life now. How to destroy the giants in your life. Your David sins Goliath. All of these different things that are going on. Though I like these phrases, the problem is they are simply theologically erroneous or wrong. Our nature is bent towards sin. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. Page or two over in your Bible, verse number 10, the scripture says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh. They are all gone out of the way. They together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And then he describes in the following verses what they're like. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongue is they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their teeth are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And down to verse 23, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our bent is towards sin. Even the best of people, their bent is still towards sin. Oh, I understand. Some say, well, this person's really, they're much nicer than you are, Pastor. That is a very low bar. All are fallen. All are sinners. All 
are condemned. And our fallen nature wants to sin. And it doesn't want there to be any consequence for the sin. We want to sin with impunity, without regret, without responsibility. We want to sin without consequence. And when there is consequence, what we like to do as fallen man, and we see this in verse 23, we like to change the definition of sin or change the authority of God or even change God. Verse 23, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. We looked at this two weeks ago. God who cannot be corrupted, who has never worn down, who has never been tired, he's never been fatigued, he's never had one ounce of energy drained, he's never needed to refuel, and never will. He is uncorruptible. They've changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man or to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They simply changed everything about God. You see, man is not bent toward good, but he is bent toward sin. John MacArthur, in his classic commentary in Romans chapter 1, we would disagree with some things related to his soteriology as we will get into verses eight, or chapters 8, 9, and 10. But his commentary in Romans 1 is, is powerful. And he says this, man cannot stop this slide towards sin because he is innately a slave to sin. Romans 6, 16 to 20. You can study that when you get home. And the more he pursues his deceiving efforts at self-reformation apart from God, the more he becomes enslaved to sin, whose ultimate end is eternal death. C.S. Lewis perceptively observed in his book, The Problem of Pain, the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and therefore are self-enslaved. As we make our way to the text, understand this is going to be a multi-part message. I thought about trying to finish it all in one and and you'll see that if we do it any sense of justice or attempt to, that it would take too long to do that. But I titled this three-part series, the two- to three-part series, When God Abandons Man. And we see the basis in verse 24, the basis of God's abandonment. The basis of God's abandonment. Paul starts verse number 24 with this important word, wherefore. And he is referring back to everything that happened in verses 18 to 23. But primarily, we could look at verse number 23 where they changed the truth of God into a lie. And they made uncorruptible God like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They so disrespected God. They, they so disavowed God that they began to worship idols and they were worshiped idols because they did not like to worship God. They, they, they were tired of worshiping God because worship of God meant there's something greater than themselves. So rather than worshiping the creator, they actually created their own gods. We see 
spent three weeks talking about 18 to 23 and the wrath of God and why is there God's wrath? In verse number 18, we saw the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In 19 to 21, we see man's willful rejection of God. In verse 22, we see man's rejection rationalized, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. And then in verse 23, we see man's religion revealed. Man wants to worship a God of his own creation. So what follows, man's willful rejection of God, in spite of all the evidence that points to God, is God's abandonment. And I know, here's what folks are saying, like, come on, pastor, I don't know that I'd hear this anywhere. Well, let me tell you, there are tens of thousands of churches all over this country and this world that will preach this text correctly. We are not alone. We are not the only one by any means. There are godly pastors in pulpits today, the world over, declaring from the exact same text, the exact same truth. Maybe they say it differently, probably better, but they're still conveying the same truth. And as we committed 19 years ago when we started Canyon Ridge, that we would go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and I promised you we would not overlook the verses I don't like. Because if we did, I would overlook these. Matter of fact, I would have stopped at verse number 16 and we would have went to chapter 2. But it's all God's word. And the scripture says, God abandoned them. Notice verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up. Gave them up. That's an intense verb. It's a very intense word. Like we have words that are more intense uh, than, than others. It's like, oh, I, I like that. I love that. We, 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 we have words that are more intense than other words. And this is a very, very intense word. It's the Greek word paradidomai. And it means to actively abandon something or someone to let them do what they desire. In the New Testament, it's used of giving, giving one's body to be burned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And though I uh, give my body to be burned and have not charity, I'm a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In, uh, it's referred to paradidomai three times of Christ giving himself up to death. In a judicial sense, it's of man being, a man being committed to prison or to judgment and of the rebellious angels being delivered into pits of darkness. It, it literally just means means to actively abandon, not accidentally, but willfully and intentionally to abandon them. This word is used in verse number 26. For this cause God paradidomide or gave them up unto. In verse 28, uh, it, it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God paradidomide or God gave them over to a reprobate mind. God just actively abandoned them. Now, I want to be clear here because this is what I know. I know there's some well-meaning Christians in the room this morning that are thinking, I wonder if God has, is actively abandoning me. Now, let me be the first to say, if you're a follower of Christ, God can never abandon you. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That God gives us everlasting life. God cannot, will not abandon the believer. It is apart from his character. It would violate who he is. God does not abandon believers. 
And God, you say, well, does God abandon unbelievers? He does. That's what this passage is talking about. We'll make some application to believers, but it is only after a perpetual and continual and willful rejection of God. Well, who does God abandon? I don't know. It's on God's timetable, not mine. I don't get to make those decisions If I made that decision, I would pull the trigger way too quickly and then God would have to have abandoned me and my foolishness. When abandon happens, we need to ask the question, what does it look like? Well, the answer is in our text. Number one, God removes his restraining hand of grace. What do you mean his restraining hand of grace? This is, the restraining hand of grace is is, what we need to understand as that which keeps us from doing things that are in direct violation of scripture, things that are scandalous, things that are disobedient, things that are an affront to the gospel, things that are an affront to the person of Christ. That is the restraining hand of God's grace. God keeps us, listen to the words I'm about to say, from the stupidity and sinfulness of ourselves. I'm not saying you're any more dumb than me, but just humanity. God's restraining hand of grace prevents us from doing what we would do. Even to the unbeliever, God is extremely patient and his restraining hands of grace uh, protect them. The woman Jezebel in the Old Testament, she's the queen of Israel, her husband was Ahab, but she was the runner of, she ran the nation and she's the embodiment of sin. She's the embodiment of everything you would read in verse 18 to 23, primarily verse 23 and 24. She is everything that this text represents, Jezebel, idolatry, immorality. But I want you to know, according to Revelation chapter two, verse number 20, God gave Jezebel in all of her sin, in all of her Christ rejection, time to repent. Even in the days of Noah, when the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and Genesis 6, 5 says, every imagination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Even God in his goodness and in his grace and his restraining hand of grace, God sent a preacher named Noah to build an ark and to preach the gospel. For how long? About a hundred years, a little more than a hundred years. Noah preached and built and preached and built and preached the merciful message of repentance of sin and salvation by grace and Christ alone alone the coming messiah but eventually in both cases god gave jezebel and god gave the people in noah's day up he actively abandoned them well what does god actively abandon them to wherefore god also gave them up to uncleanness uncleanness Some of you might think you know what uncleanness is because you have teenagers and you've been by their room recently. But this word, uncleanness, means filth in a natural, physical, or moral sense. It's often used of decaying matter, especially the contents of the grave, which were considered by Jews to be physically and ceremonially unclean. In a moral term, which this is, is a moral word, it is usually referred to as being so closely associated with sexual immorality. So uncleanness, and certainly in the context here, is referring to sexual immorality. Wherefore, God gave them up to 
their sexual immorality. It says in our text, through the lust of their own hearts. Lust can mean strong desire, but it refers here, and most of the time in every usage, to carnal desires or appetites for that which is sinful or forbidden. To the lust of their own hearts, the Bible says. Their own hearts. This is the seat of desire and feelings, affection, passion, impulses. Their own hearts, that which is in the inside of a man. We in our vernacular, and we're not trying to change the scripture, I just want you to understand this. We would probably use the word the mind. Gave them up to the lust of their own mind. What we think about, what we dwell on, the passions of the, of the mind, of the, of the heart. That's what he's referring to here. The, the, we would say it this way, the, the seat and the center of mankind, that which is inside of us. We might use the word mind or heart. The Bible uses the word heart more accurately than the word mind is as the center and the seed of, seat of who we are as individuals. In other words, read this text this way. Wherefore, or because of the things that you've been doing and will do, God is giving you over, paradidomying you, letting you loose to your sexual immorality through the passions and lust of your own affections and feelings and impulses. In other words, God's saying, I'm I'm not going to restrain you anymore. You can, you can do whatever you want to dishonor, verse 24, your own bodies. To treat without dignity, that's what dishonor means. You, you want to treat your body without any dignity? You want to treat the bodies of another person with utter disregard for their creation and the intent of their creator? It's, it's kind of like God saying, Paradidomai. I give up. Not I give up and like I can't win, but I'll let you do your thing. Meaning our world would cheer that. I could do what I want. But make no mistake, though God may give a person up, may paradidomai them, may release them, may allow them to do what it is that their hearts desire and may actively abandon them. Though he may do that, they are not free from the consequences of those actions. The bottom line is God's wrath is upon those who reject him as creator. And that wrath often takes the form of letting them do what they desire and then suffer the consequence of getting what they want you see our bodies were not made for ourselves first corinthians chapter 6 verse number 16 the scripture says what know you not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body for two saith he shall be one flesh but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit flee fornication every sin that a man doeth is without the body but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body what know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you which you have of God and you are not your own for you are bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's flee fornication the word fornication it's a Greek word porneia and, and it literally 
literally means uh, any sexual gratification outside of the boundaries of marriage as prescribed in scripture as between one man and one woman for one lifetime. So sexting is included here. Your, listen to me, your thought life is included here. Pornography is included here. Adultery is included here. Sex before marriage is included here. Flee fornication. Run from it. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're a believer. You are bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Both your body and your spirit are God's. Here's what a lot of Christians think. Well, as long as I do right, God doesn't care what I think. No, that's garbage. Your spirit's God's. A crummy spirit brings no joy to the Lord. Sometimes people come to church and they're mad when they get here and they're mad when they leave and they're mad when they go home. I used to take it personally, but then I saw them out in the world. They're just mad all the time. Dude hadn't been happy. Girl hadn't been happy in decades. I mean, she has not been happy since the Cleveland Browns won a Super Bowl and that hasn't happened since the 60s and she was born in the 80s. Your spirit is the Lord's. It's not your own. I mean, this Lord's gripping me with this. I don't have the authority to have whatever spirit I want. I have to have a spirit that brings glorification to the Lord. Why? Because it's his. Flee fornication. Why? Because I'm not my own. Bought with a price. What's the price? Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. His death on Calvary, the suffering, all the sin of all mankind for all time was placed on him there. The Father turned his back on him. The sky went dark. All of the hell that Jesus went through for to purchase our salvation, that is the cost of what I have and what you have insofar as our salvation. Pastor, isn't it enough that it's just a couple of consenting adults? Can't we just, I mean, back to Romans 24 or 124, as long as, as, as we're not hurting anyone, well, that's a fallacy on every level. To assume that sin only affects the person sinning is, is laughable on its face. Sin affects so many more people than you could ever imagine. But there comes a point when God just says, I'll give up. You want to keep going down that road? I give up. But man's willful, repeated rejection of God only leads to ugly and disastrous consequences. Ugly and disastrous consequences. I share the following illustration to prove the heart of man when the restraint of God is removed from a culture. I come and talk amongst pastors, especially those of us who are Orthodox, conservative in our theology is can America ever see a revival 
lot of people say yes. I, I don't think so. I think we can have local revivals, and I pray for that at Canyon Ridge. I pray that you have revival in your heart and a passion for Jesus, and that we see hundreds and thousands of people saved, and you bringing guests to church every week, and them hearing the gospel and being saved. That's our prayer. We want to see that kind of revival, but will we ever as a nation see a revival? I, I personally don't think so. I hope I'm wrong. Why do I not think so? Because as I understand scripture, God has removed his hand of protection and blessing and restraint from our nation. Just this week, July 1st, the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir sang a song titled, We'll Convert Your Children. I got the lyrics. Here they are. You think that we'll convert your kids if our agenda goes unchecked? Just this once, you're correct. We'll convert your children happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly. You'll never notice it. We'll convert your children. We'll make them tolerant and fair. Just like you worried they'll change their group of friends, you just won't approve of where they go. I'm, I'm sorry, let me read that. You won't approve of where they go at night, and you'll be disgusted when they start learning things online that you kept from their sight. We'll convert your children. Yes, we will. Reaching one and all. There's really no escaping it because even grandma likes RuPaul. And, and I know Christian grandmothers who do. And Christian dads who let their kids watch it because it's just fun and funny. It's obviously a part of the agenda. This is the next line. The world is getting kinder. Gen Z's, that's your teenagers and young adults. Gen Z's are gayer than Grinder, which is a gay hookup app. Hookup does not mean relationships. Gen Z's are gayer than Grinder. We're coming for them. We're coming for your children. The gay agenda is coming home. The gay agenda is here. I, I have to be honest, I don't, I don't, I see God going, I'm just giving you up. And there you go. Made the news, it was a big deal, and here's what a lot of people said. Oh, they're just trying to be funny and make fun of Christians, which they were certainly making fun of Christians. I don't mind being made fun of, I make fun of myself. The sad reality is, though, they weren't making fun. They were declaring, they were singing their anthem. They know in order for their lifestyle to perpetuate, they have to subtly... And bit by bit to where you barely notice it. Bring that on your kids. See, wherefore God gave them to uncleanness. We're talking about sexual perversion through the passion of their own inner man. What I'm fearful of, it seems like every kid in our church has a phone. 
And sometimes they use it to call people. And parents in here, because everybody has to be a helicopter parent and constantly have to know everything that's going on with their kids. So we actually put these devices that are fast tracks to porn in their hands. When they're texting their friends and watching videos and in-group chats and reading books and researching things and they live on social media where there is an aggressive agenda to pervert and convert your children. And they were right. I am so thankful they sang that song because they're right. I have the utmost respect for them because they were honest. You'll be disgusted with what they start lear- when they start learning things online. Yeah. Several years ago, I was in my car and a pastor from a distant city called me and we're friends. He called me, he was weeping on the phone. He said, Pastor Chavik, I don't know how to say this, but I need your help. And I said, well, brother, I'll stop everything. Do I need to fly to see you or drive to get there? If I couldn't get a flight out today, what do I need to do? How could I help you? He said, no, I just need to talk on the phone. I said, all right. He said, my daughter, when she was seven years old, was on the playground and in front of our apartment complex. And she heard some kids talking about kissing. And he said she'd never seen this before. I wanted to say, she lives in your house with you and your wife and she's never seen you kiss your wife? What a crying shame. So she came home and she took out an iPad that we bought her to, she was homeschooled and we bought it so she could read books and play some games and watch some movies and and here's here's words. He said, no, Pastor, before I get into it, you need to understand that we put the latest filters on it and the most up-to-date software to protect her and we disabled the Wi-Fi and and there was was no password she could ever figure out. But Pastor, as a seven, eight-year-old girl, she figured out a way around everything that we put up on her iPad. And he's weeping and I'm like, okay, what What happened? He said, last night, my wife was walking by her room and she saw a light on under the covers. And so she went and pulled back the covers to thinking she was playing a game or reading a book. And pastor, my nine-year-old daughter was watching the most debased pornography I've ever seen. I didn't say this in the great 30 service. I... I hear people say stuff like that, and I'm like, the most abase you've ever seen? Come on. I mean, how bad was it? And he went on to describe it, and I would tell you it's some of the most debased pornography ever made. A nine-year-old girl. He said, Pastor, you've got to understand I was just trying to be the cool dad. And there's so many things we don't let our kids do because we're Christians. I thought we could ever do this. And I'm terrified of the lasting damage I have done. 
Now, I know when I say this, there's people in the room going, I know every keystroke my kids make. I can see it all. Dear parent, as your friend and your loving pastor, you are delusional. You have bought a lie. You're conning yourself. I asked some of our staff guys yesterday. I said, hey, go online and tell me how long it takes to figure out how to bypass filters and firewalls. Just go online. I had them do it together because I wanted accountability because I don't trust them. I'm kidding. But I said, go online and I just want you to tell me how long it takes you to figure it out. Like if you were like, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, how long would it take you to figure out how to bypass every filter, every firewall, everything? Less than five minutes. Less than five minutes. I said, come on, guys. I thought at least 10. And they said, no, pastor, less than five. And they started sending me link after link after link after link of software that totally goes around every fire, firewall and every protection. Pastor, you could just right here, right here, right here, right here, right here, right here, right here. Like, holy cow. Oh, I know every keystroke my kid's making. Come on. Well, I don't want them to be different, though, than the world. I mean, I mean, Pastor, I've got to be able to get a hold of my kid in a moment. So it's amazing that I grew up without my parents getting a hold of me. Matter of fact, my parents didn't want to get a hold of me. I said, should I call? Or are you going to yell at me when it's time to come home? No, just, just, just if, if we're here, come home. If you don't see us, we've moved. Don't worry about it. We'll eventually send for you. Why has all this happened? Now, I have to say this. I think there are well-meaning parents who do that, but I, if I can be honest with you, the reason so many of you allow screens to raise your kids is because you're lazy. You've got the thrill, but you don't want to pay the bill. And your kids are the ones that suffer for the rest of their lives. Because you have allowed them that. You say, Pastor, it's just hard raising kids. Bro, I get it. And Debbie and I have made a mountain of mistakes. But if you don't want to put the work in, you're not raising a puppy that you can throw in the backyard with a bone and a cup of water, and they'll be fine, hopefully. You're raising a child who's created in the image of God. There are people who want to satisfy their own lust in this world and dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And why would they be so depraved? Why are they so depraved? Verse 25, because man has lost the wonder, fear, and reverence of God. Man has lost the wonder, fear, and reverence of God. They've changed. They changed the truth. I know it's a heavy message. You ought to be the one up here preaching it. Changed. To change from one thing to another. What did they change? 
They change the truth, the reality. Now, we've got to be in context here. They change the observable reality of God. That's what the word truth is, observable reality. They change the truth of God. They inverted from one thing to another the veracity, the reality, the observable reality of God into a lie, into a falsehood. The word lie, it's, it's an interesting Greek word. It means pseudo or kind of or close enough but totally different. It, it's fake, it's falsehood, it's fictitious, it's vain. That's what the word lie means. It might look similar, but it's completely dissimilar. It's like fake leather, that plastic that looks like leather, pleather, as they call it. It's like you buy a pleather couch, a fake leather couch, you sit on that without your shirt on in the summertime, when you go to get up, you will have a full body hickey. you don't think so, go buy one and do it. You know it's true. It's like getting out of a 1977 Chevelle. It's like you're like... They've changed the truth, the reality, the observable reality into a fictitious falsehood. You see, the observable truth in God's creation is this, in relationship to this text is that sex is the most fulfilling and is most fulfilling in a loving, committed, married Christian relationship. God is the creator of sex, and those who worship God and follow his word should have the greatest sex life on the planet. It's more fun, more enjoyable, totally guilt-free, brings more pleasure, more intimacy, more commitment within a God-centered marriage than anything outside a God-centered marriage could ever imagine. That is the observable reality with people who follow God's word. But they change that truth into a lie. I'm going to deal with an application first, and then I'll deal with the interpretation of that. The application of that within the church, we, we have to be careful here. Because within the church, we've changed the truth of God into a lie by this format. By saying this, the holier you are, the less frequency of sex you have within your marriage. Like sex is had by weaker Christians. But the closer you get to Jesus, the further away you get from your spouse. That's why we have Christian couples I read a statistic the other day and I was shocked at how low it was. It said the average American today, this is the lowest in, in recorded history. The average married American couple has sex 50 times a year. And I thought, my Lord, how bad is that? That's, that's less than once a week. I was sharing that with some pastor friends and they said, are you serious? I was like, yeah, isn't that shocking? They're like, yeah. And I was like, I know. The condition of our families, we've got to do something here. And they were like, I don't think we're talking about the same thing. I was like, well, what's shocking to you? 
And they were like, well, what's shocking to you? So rather than play the junior high game, I said, well, the infrequency of sex, what's shocking to you? They said, the frequency of sex. I can't believe people could have sex 50 times a year. I got so many jokes and the message won't allow it. But there's this idea that the holier you are, the less frequent you have, less frequency of sex that you have. That's why kids grow up and say, I don't even know if my parents loved each other. I don't even know if that, I mean, did they even like each other? So that's the model that they see and that's the model that's been perpetuated. The other changing, pseudoing of the truth within the church is it's church and we don't talk about sex. Now, I know there's people here. Here's what people say, because we teach on this every year around our couples retreat, because we want you to have an awesome, fulfilled marriage and to be totally satisfied within marriage, sexually, uh, within marriage, sexually, within marriage. I'm waiting to amen myself. Within marriage. And people say, oh, it's porno with pastor. Here we go again. Dude, check your kid's stupid phone. Scroll through their dadgum Instagram account for five minutes. Find out their VPN passwords. And you want to worry what I'm talking about? Dude. We don't talk. God is the creator. This is where we learn about God. This is where we learn about God's creation. Are you telling me I'm supposed to be silent on the most important aspect in the marriage? You say, that's it. I don't think it's the most important. I'm sorry. You're wrong. It's not the only thing that's important. But it's the number one indicator of marriage health. And let me tell you, a lot of sex doesn't make a great marriage, but great marriages have a lot of sex. Let me say that without any passion. A lot of sex does not make a great marriage. But great marriages have a lot of sex. But the world has pseudoed that, lied about that. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 1, turn there with me if you'd like to. I hope that you do because I want you to see the scripture on this point. The Bible says now, oh, it's on the screen. I'm sorry, I forgot what I put on there. It's my second time to preach this. Now concerning the things wherever you wrote unto me is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise, also the wife unto the husband. Verse number three just means you need to sexually satisfy your, your spouse. Your spouse. Not somebody else. Come on, it's the word of God. You can look at it. You can say amen. You can even hate it and tell God he's stupid. But you can't get mad at the dude who's simply defining what the words mean. The wife, verse number four, does not have power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, the husband does not have power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud you not the one, the other, except with it be with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. If you don't, if you're not regularly practicing sex, you're opening yourself up to Satan. Well, you're just saying the point of sex is to have fun. No, no, no. The point of sex is not to have fun. The point of sex is to connect with your spouse. The, The point is the big O of sex is not orgasm. It's oneness. 
It's the very thing the world can never produce, but they've changed the truth into a lie. I've done marriage counseling for almost 30 years. Almost 30 years. And regularly, and I love every opportunity to help folks. I've never in 30 years, and I've checked with every counselor I know of, and this is true across the board for the people I know, so it's anecdotal, I get it. I totally accept, accept that. But I've never had anybody need marriage counseling that had a biblically healthy sex life. Not because it makes it right, but it's an indicator of our health as a couple. Well, that's the application. Pastor, what's the interpretation? Well, the interpretation here for the world is they change the truth of God into a lie. And what's the lie? The lie is that everything is okay. Whatever you do, it's okay as long as you don't hurt anybody is the phrase. You just change it into a lie. And they worshiped and served the creator more than the create, or the creation more than the, or the creature, I can read, the creature more than the creator. It's like Genesis 6, 5, about the days of Noah. The wickedness of men was great on the earth and the ever imagination of the thoughts of their heart is only evil continually. They worshiped. It's a different word than we would normally read for worship. Probably the most common word for worship in the Greek is proskuneo, and it means to fall down prostrate before, to kiss the hand. It's a word of total submission, but here it's abizomai, and it means to stand in awe of or to reverence. It's an expression of veneration. They worshiped. They venerated the creature, the thing created. They, they stood in awe of the creation more than the creator. And the creator is blessed or inherently blessed or worthy of praise forever. And then this important word here, amen. Well, you say, Pastor, it's not important. No, no, the word amen means affirmation or this is truth. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying, He's saying, everything that I just said, and this paragraph starts in 24 and ends in 25, and everything that I have just said is the truth. It's like Paul is saying this, like the Holy Spirit has taken and told me what to say, but I want you to know that I affirm this truth. There's a double emphasis here. It's still the truth whether Paul liked it or not, now, I, I think I said a couple of weeks ago, and I said it, I don't know why I said it, it was, it was wrong of me. I said, Paul is writing from Ephesus. I said that a couple of weeks ago. He's not writing Romans from Ephesus. He's writing Romans from Corinth. And Corinth was a depraved, wicked, ungodly, godless city. They had a temple to Diana there. And they say that there were thousands upon thousands of priestesses to Diana in the temple, basically temple prostitutes that would come and flood Corinth, and you could have any type of sexual satisfaction 
section within Corinth that you wanted, and everybody thought it was okay. And Paul is writing here, and he's he, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. God is telling him what to write, and he's putting it on paper, and, and he's talking about the uncleanness of their own heart, and the lust of their own heart, and the sexual immorality of their own heart, and they dishonor their own bodies between themselves, and they change the truth into a lie. And why'd they do that? Because they worship the creation more than the creator, and the creator is blessed forever. Not the creation, but the creator will be forever, and he's blessed forever. And it's like Paul says, amen. I affirm this. So what do I do with this? Well, I think there's four things. Number one, you need to understand God gives you time to repent. First Peter 3.20, talking about the days of Noah, says sometimes they were disobedient, but when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water, God's giving you time to repent. Time to repent. Number two, Romans 1, 19 to 21, God has revealed himself to you. Because that which may be known of God is seen, uh, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has revealed himself to you. Number three, put to death those desires. This is easier said than done, but Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to 6 says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things, uh, I'm sorry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. He says, God's wrath is going to come on the children of disobedience. Church, talking to the church at Colossae, mortify. The word mortify means to kill, destroy, get rid of. Mortify your members which are upon the earth. What is he talking about? Fornication, uncleanness, the same words that we've looked up here. Inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. Get rid of those in your life. Bet God for freedom from that. Every time you're tempted, repent of it and ask God for victory and strength to never think that way again. What if I think that way again? Then do it over. And what if I think it again? Do it over. And what if I'm tempted to go online? Don't and, and repent and go to God for grace and strength. You can't do it without his grace, but you can with his grace and mortify it, kill it, be done with it. If you're here, if you're watching online or listening now or Decades later, understand God has not given up on you. God is still working on you and wants you to turn to him. Corinth, the place from where Paul is writing, a wicked city. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 9, he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Do you see how idolatry and immorality are directly linked here? Didn't bring that up in our text, but it is in our text too. It's the big idea actually of our text, but not fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers, abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But notice the grace of God extended to the church at Corinth. But such were some of you. Some of you were idolaters and fornicators and adulterers and effeminate and abusers of yourself with mankind. That means homosexuals. You, some of you were that, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you 
are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. If you're here watching, listening, understand God is still working on you and he is extending to you another offer of grace, another opportunity to turn to him. If you were to take this paragraph and make it one sentence, it would be this, something like this. If you choose to live your life without God, don't be shocked when the consequences are without his grace. God's reaching out to you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus is your savior, he's reaching out to you. He wants you to be saved. He's He's pleading with you. He's convicting you. He's pleading with you. He doesn't care if you prayed a prayer when you were four or if you've been to church for 50 years and, and know every note of every song that's ever been written. He doesn't care about that. If you don't know him, he's plea he wants you to be saved. But if you continually reject him, don't be shocked when the consequence is life without his grace. Christian parents, husbands and wives, single folks, teenagers, what a meaty, meaty passage. One that we will give an account for. And our prayer is, however the Lord has spoken to you, you will be surrendered to him. Father, bless our time in the word this morning. We're indeed thankful and grateful for it. I pray that you'd work in our hearts now during this time of contemplation, that you'd help us today, Lord. To mortify these things, to understand this passage, and to be transformed. I don't have questions. I'm just going to say two things. Number one, if you're here today and you're not sure that if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven. In just a moment, we're going to stand. Some people will come forward to this altar and pray. When they do, would you come see myself or Pastor Lund? We have people here who would love to take the Bible and show you from God's word how you can have eternal life, how you can have heaven as your home, how you can be forgiven of your sin. And so I pray that as soon as we stand, that you'll come forward to one of us and we'll get you with a counselor. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.